podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a Tad Predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast. Today is Wednesday. It is the 12th of July. If you are of a certain type, you may well be having parades today. If so, you know, do it properly. Do it politely. Don't cause trouble. Uh, If you're burning bonfires with effigies on it, uh, I'm sorry, please don't listen to this anymore because you're just a dickhead. Um, just that, that's all there is to it, really. Uh, more importantly today, today is my little sister's birthday. My sister has turned 30 years of age. 
Uh, so happy birthday to her. But just to remind her again that just because you have a birthday, that doesn't mean you're special. Everybody has a birthday. I had one myself only a few months ago. I will have one again next year. So, you know, you're not all that special, little sis. But uh, no, seriously, uh, my sister is amazing. And what she has done in the last couple of years uh, is something I'm incredibly proud of. She is absolutely amazing. So happy birthday to her. And uh, let's get into today's podcast. We are, of course, the Nostalgia Merchant Podcast here. And today we are going to look at what is arguably the most painful experience of my entire football watching life. The 1998-99 Premier League season. When we had to sit and watch as Manchester United won a treble that nobody thought was possible. When they and Arsenal were just so far above everybody else that it made it seem hopeless. And now it's worth pointing out here that while United did win the treble, the gap between them and Arsenal was not significant. And if not for a Peter Schmeichel penalty save, Arsenal may well have won the domestic double, if not for all the luck in the world, Bayern Munich could easily have won the European Cup final and Manchester United could have ended up with nothing. And those are the margins that exist in this game. Now, this Premier League season was highly anticipated because Arsenal had obviously won the double in 97-98 That did not sit well with Alex Ferguson because United not winning everything was unacceptable to him at all times. And he went about this season with a real vengeance, which we'll come to when we look at the transfers. But in terms of our teams for this year, we obviously had Bolton, Barnsley and Crystal Palace relegated at the end of the 97-98 season. And coming up into the division, we had Nottingham Forest and Middlesbrough, both of whom had been in the league, gotten relegated, and now bounced back up. For Forest, this was their third crack at the Premier League. Uh, For Borough, their second. And Charlton Athletic, making their return to the top flight after an eight-year absence, their first time in the Premier League. So we have a new stadium added to the list. We have the Valley. Now, Charlton, prior to this, for a couple of years, had actually had to play at Selhurst Park because the Valley was not in usable condition and needed quite a bit of work. So we get this stadium that we've heard of. We haven't seen it in the league. We haven't experienced it and actually to be fair the valley is to this day a great stadium and Charlton are a really good club and I've always had an affinity for Charlton but if you ever get a chance to go to the valley I highly recommend it it's a really really good stadium to go to 
if Charlton are playing well. Now, it's been built up quite a bit since this era. They filled in the corners. They've built a new stand. Might build two new stands. But it's a really good stadium, and it's absolutely one I would recommend if you get an opportunity, and you will. You could rock up to pretty much any Charlton home game and pay in on the door, and it wouldn't be an issue. Um, So it's our new stadium. Forest are at the city ground, obviously, as they still are, and Borough are at the Riverside. Now, on to managers. So, at the end of the previous season, uh, Sheffield Wednesday said goodbye to Ron Atkinson and brought in Danny Wilson. Danny Wilson has obviously been a bit of a journeyman manager, but at this time was seen as quite an exciting young manager. Um, Everton went through another managerial change. Howard Kendall decided he didn't want to stay, so they replaced him with Walter Smith. Now, Walter Smith came to the league with a big reputation. He'd been with Rangers. He'd done exceptionally well there. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven league titles in a row. Now, he would go back to Rangers, obviously, and win three more, but he came with seven in a row in his pocket. And people thought, Walter Smith's the next great Scottish manager to come to the league. That was genuinely the feeling. He was 50. He wasn't an old manager. He was seen as somebody that could be at Everton for a long, long time and bring them back to the level they'd been at in the 90s. Wouldn't turn out that way, but that was the hope at the time. Liverpool made a bizarre decision and decided to add Gerard Houllier to their management team, not as manager, but as co-manager, which was just very, very weird. Now, at the time, there was reason for excitement because we're coming off the back of France winning the 1998 World Cup. Gerard Houllier has been credited by many as one of the architects of that success. And obviously with Roy Evans, Liverpool had done quite well in terms of, you know, top four finishes. But back then they weren't worth as much as they are now because the the European Cup was one team, then two teams. By this point, it's only three teams. So Liverpool were still not getting into the big competition every year, which was the aim. Arsene Wenger at Arsenal, John Gregory at Aston Villa, Brian Kidd at Blackburn, Alan Kerbishley at Charlton. Alan Kerbishley, who strangely left Charlton for West Ham after years of speculation that he was going to go to a bunch of different clubs. Lasted only two years there, less than two years. And hasn't worked since and it's 15 years since he left West Ham Alan Kerbishley was a really highly regarded manager and for whatever reason he's never gone back into management which I just find really strange he did a tremendous job at Charlton for the 15 years he was there made the jump to West Ham and for whatever reason it just has turned down multiple jobs Multiple jobs, including going back to Charlton, which he's been offered a couple of times. 
And at 65 now, he's unlikely to to return. Maybe he's happy in life and doesn't want to stress. And if that's the case, then that's absolutely fine. Why should he? Um, Gianluca Vialli at Chelsea, Gordon Strachan at Coventry, Jim Smith at Derby County, Walter Smith at Everton, David O'Leary at Leeds, Martin O'Neill at Leicester, Gerard Houllier at Liverpool, Alex Ferguson at United, Brian Robson, uh, Gerard Houllier and Roy Evans, I should say, Brian Robson, Ruud Hullet, Ron Atkinson, Danny Wilson, Dave Jones, George Graham, Harry Redknapp, uh, Terry Burton and Mick Harford. Those are the managers that finished the season because during the season, we had a lot of change. I, almost an unusual amount of change. So Kenny Dalglish was sacked on the 27th of August. He was replaced by Ruud Hullet. And if you ever wonder where the phrase sexy football comes from, it comes from Ruud Hullet going to Newcastle and promising to bring sexy football back to the club. Uh, Christian Gross was sacked as Tottenham manager on the 5th of September, replaced by David Pleat and Chris Hewton as caretakers. They were then replaced by George Graham a month later. Graham left Leeds to go to Spurs and was replaced by David O'Leary, who had really good success there. Uh, Huli- uh, Evan stepped down as co-manager on the 12th of November and Julier was given the reins. Roy Hodgson was sacked as Blackburn manager on the 21st of November and Brian Kidd would eventually replace him. Brian Kidd was the assistant to Alex Ferguson famously and left in the middle of the treble season. And uh, things did not go particularly well for him at Blackburn. And you'd wonder if he still regrets that decision. Uh, Dave Bassett was sacked as Nottingham Forest manager. And making yet another return is Big Ron Atkinson in his caretaker till the end of the season. And Joe Kinnear had to step down as manager of Wimbledon after suffering a heart attack. And that was in March. He was replaced by Terry Burton and Mick Harford as co-caretakers. Our captains, you had Tony Adams at Arsenal, Garrett Southgate at Aston Villa, Gary Flickcroft at Blackburn, Mark Kinsella at Charlton, Dennis Wise at Chelsea, Gary McAllister at Coventry, Igor Stimach at Derby, Dave Watson, still captain of Everton, Lucas Radaby at Leeds, Steve Walsh at Leicester, Paul Ince at Liverpool, Roy Keane with Manchester United, Andy Townsend with Middlesbrough, Alan Shearer with Newcastle, Steve Chettle with Nottingham Forest, Peter Atherton with uh, Sheffield Wednesday, Matt Letizier with Southampton, Saul Campbell with Tottenham, uh, Steve Lomas with West Ham, and Robbie Earle was Wimbledon captain. Kit-wise, Nike still had Arsenal and nobody else. Reebok, had Aston Villa, they had Liverpool, and that was their lot. Yule Sport had um, Blackburn Rovers, who moved on from Asics. That was the only team Yule Sport made the kits for. Charlton had Lecoq Sportif, as did Coventry City. Umbro still going strong. They had Chelsea, they had Everton, they had Manchester United. And they had Nottingham Forest. Puma had Derby County, 
They had Leeds United and they had Sheffield Wednesday. Fox Leisure was still making the kits for Leicester. Iria were making Middlesbrough's kits. Adidas were only represented by Newcastle. Pony had Tottenham, Southampton and West Ham. And Lotto were making the Wimbledon kits. Uh, Sponsor-wise, it's still JVC for Arsenal. LDV Vans, new sponsor for Aston Villa. CIS, still at Blackburn. Mesh Computers were the sponsors of Charlton. They are a private computer company based in London. Autoglass were still with Chelsea. Subaru at Coventry. EDS were a new sponsor for Derby County. One to One was still at Everton. Packard Bell still at Leeds. Walker still at Leicester. Carlsberg still at Liverpool. Sharp still at Manchester United. Selnet still at Middlesbrough. Newcastle Brown Ale still for the tune. Pinnacle Insurance, who I assume were a local Nottingham company, were the Forest sponsors. Sanderson were still sponsoring Sheffield Wednesday and Southampton. Hewlett Packard still with Tottenham. Doc Martens were the new sponsor of West Ham, and that's probably the most iconic West Ham shirt with the Doc Martens logo. And Elonox were still the Wimbledon uh, sponsors. Now, transfers this season. Again, my apologies, this is not done in alphabetical order, but I have sent an email. <laughs> I have actually sent an email asking them, can they please, please just put it in alphabetical order? But I assume it'll just be ignored. Um, Let's start then with Aston Villa. So they signed Dion Dublin from Coventry City, Steve Stone from Nottingham Forest, Alan Thompson from Bolton, Paul Merson from Middlesbrough, Steve Watson from Newcastle, and David Unsworth from West Ham. That's actually, to be fair, a strong window. Now, there's a very homegrown tinge to it, which is very John Gregory, but it is a strong window. Um, Sheffield Wednesday signed Wim Young, not legendary Dutch midfielder, but a very good Dutch midfielder. Uh, They signed Richard Cresswell, whose son, Charlie, now plays for uh, Leeds United. Richard Cresswell, probably best known for his time at Stoke, more so than Sheffield Wednesday. Uh, And they signed Phil Scott from St. Johnston. And Pavel Cernicek from Bannock Ostrava. Now, Cernicek, obviously better known for his time at um, Newcastle, but he did have this spell here with the Owls as well. Uh, Leicester City, Andy Impey from West Ham, good player. Frank Sinclair from Chelsea. Arnor Gunlogson from Bolton. Jerry Taggart from Bolton. And that's about... It, uh, Laurie Dudfield, I don't remember. Uh, Wimbledon signed John Hartson from West Ham after he kicked Isle Berkovich in the face and had to leave. They signed Garrett Ainsworth from Port Vale, Andy Roberts from Crystal Palace, and Lee Jones from Akron Zips. Akron is in Ohio, if I'm not mistaken. It's where LeBron James is from and where Steph Curry was born. I do not know 
of the Akron Zips. Oh, they're, 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 it's the University of Akron team, so he was straight out of college. Okay, that makes a little bit of sense to me now. Uh, I'd, I'd love to know why they're called the Zips. If somebody has any knowledge of that, please do let me know on Twitter. Uh, Coventry City signed Steve Froggett from Wolves. They signed Mark Edworthy from Crystal Palace. Laurent Delorge from KAA Ghent. John Aloisi from Portsmouth. He was a decent striker back in the day. Philip Clement from Genk. He was half decent as well in his time. And Gary McPhee from Vietas Arnhem. Um, Manchester United went big, as I said. And this was this was a real statement summer from Ferguson. So first things first, they signed Jasper Blomqvist. Now, uh, Blomqvist rather. now, when he was coming through in Sweden... I want to say what IFK Gothenburg. I'll just check that. I do remember him being fairly sensational in a Champions League run. It was for IFK. And there was a lot of hype around him. And he went to Italy. He went to Milan. Didn't quite make the grade. Went to Parma. Couldn't settle. And United jumped in. And he was never great for United. But what he did was he gave them good wing depth. Because behind Beckham and Giggs, they didn't have a whole lot of quality depth other than kids. He was a bit more experienced, had a bit more quality about him. And you can play him in a big game and he'd give you a decent performance. They signed Dwight York from Manchester, or from Aston Villa. And obviously York and Cole, one of the most famous Premier League strike partnerships that we've seen. And then the signing that really changed things for them, which was Yapstam coming in from PSV Eindhoven. Now, this is pre-internet, pre-YouTube, pre-social media, pre-the whole lot. So we didn't have a huge amount of knowledge about Yapstam because PSV hadn't really, they hadn't really been in the Champions League to do enough to properly get a view on this lad. The, the, the Dutch team that we knew through the 90s was the Ajax team, which had won the European Cup and gotten through the final. PSV were less of a known quantity at this point. And we didn't know much about this guy, but United spent, I think it was 12 million at the time to bring him in. And he arrived and he looked like something that had been created in a lab from an experiment that had gone wrong. He was this massive hulking bold lad with this terrifying glower. And when you saw him play, like he had, defensively, he had everything. He was Dominant in the air. He was rapid. He was so strong. Brilliant 1v1. Great cover defender. Great organizer. Defensively, Ibu Kanate is the closest thing to him right now. And Ibu's probably not as strong as Stam was. Stam wasn't fantastic on the ball, but he was comfortable enough. And what he did do well was he always made the right decision. You rarely saw Yapstam give the ball away. And when he joined United, it was like when Van Dyke joined Liverpool. Not Probably not to the same extreme because United were already an excellent team, but you could just see the level of that defence go up. Neville improved exponentially at right back. Ronnie Johnson improved massively next to him. Dennis Irwin had already been brilliant, so it didn't make much difference to Dennis. But... Those two just, they gave United a a sensational defence. Now, 
when we get into talking about the season, you'll see that as good as their defence was, it wasn't even nearly the best in the league, which is huge credit to somebody else. Um, moving on to Newcastle, they signed Duncan Ferguson in a move they would regret. They signed Didi Hammond, Silvio Marich, who flopped, Didi, Didier Domi, who flopped, Stefan Givarch coming off winning the World Cup with France, who flopped. They signed Alberto Solano, who would obviously become a bit of a legend. In the tune, he was the first Peruvian player. Well, at least to my knowledge, the first Peruvian player to come to the league. And he's certainly... He has to be the best Peruvian we've had in the league. Um, John Carolise, Stephen Glass, Gary Brady, Lauren Charvet, Carl Serrant, Georgius... Georgiadis and Lionel Perez also arriving. And they did bring a very young, very, very raw Luis Saha to the Premier League for the first time. And you could tell there was something about him. He was ridiculously quick, absolutely explosive. Like from a standing start, he was three yards away from a defender before they'd even turned around to move. It was it was something unusual. Couldn't finish to save his life at the time, but he had this pace. Um, Nottingham Forest signed Nigel Quasi. OGs will remember Nigel Quasi. Really good midfielder who'd come through the QPR Academy. Had a good career. Uh, Neil Shipperley, Carlton Palmer, Dougie Friedman, Jesper Matson, Andy Gray, Richard Goff, very experienced Scottish centre-back coming back to the UK from San Jose Clash. I don't think he did much of anything for them. Um, they lost quite a few players. Steve Stone, Colin Cooper, who was reliable for them. Uh, Kevin Campbell, Scotty Gemmell left as well. Uh, Middlesbrough signed Brian Dean, Colin Cooper, Gary Pallister, Dean Gordon, Luke Wiltshire. Very different approach to the last time they'd come up. This time they went experience. English, proven in the division. Chelsea signed Pierluigi Casaraghi, which was really exciting at the time, and then he had that horrendous leg break. They signed Marcel Desailly, who had been otherworldly in that World Cup and obviously was was a world-class player, proven world-class player, whether that was as a defensive midfielder in the Capello years at Milan or as a centre-back, which is obviously what he was for the majority. Desai coming to the the division was something everybody was kind of excited about because we just watched him in the World Cup. Uh, Albert Ferrer arrived from Barcelona, very experienced, very well-respected. Bjorn Goldback, Mikkel Forsell, who actually, Mikkel Forsell, to be fair, was a good player. And then the one, this to me is probably the most disappointing transfer in Premier League history is Brian Loudrop. Because he'd been at Rangers, and I adored him. His brother, Michael, to this day, is my all-time favourite player that I've ever seen. And I loved Brian as well. And I wanted Liverpool to sign him for years when he was at Rangers. And he was obviously the best player in Scotland by a country mile. His contract ran out, and Chelsea signed him on a Bosman. 
and they gave him a ludicrous contract, like 120 grand a week or something. So if you ever wonder why Chelsea were on the brink of going bust back when Roman bought the club, it was because in the 90s they were paying players way more than other clubs were. Um, but Brian Lauder was pretty much a disaster for Chelsea. Um, let me see it. He played like seven games and then there was like a big kerfuffle over something. And He was so talented though. Could play either wing, brilliant dribbler, great cross with the ball. Yeah, seven games. Seven games in the league. He's been 11 in all competitions. And he left. Before even kicking a ball for the club, he tried to get out of the contract. He actually tried. He actually tried to leave before the World Cup. So he'd only signed the contract and he tried to get out of it. United had tried to sign him. If he'd gone to United, it would have been game over. Um, But he eventually stayed wasn't happy, didn't like the squad rotation, didn't like the club, didn't like the manager, didn't play particularly well. And eventually, eventually, Chelsea just turned around and said, look, we're just going to have to let you go. And they paid out a four or five year contract after like nine months or something like that. And he went home to play in um, in Denmark for Copenhagen. I think he eventually went to Ajax, didn't he? Because his brother was... I'm fairly certain he played for Ajax with his brother. But he retired two years after joining Chelsea. He was only 31. It was such a waste. Such a waste. Both Loudrups... Both Loudrups didn't maximise their ability for whatever reason. I don't know if ever, either of them ever truly loved being footballers, but they were, they're two of the most skillful players of all time. Um, let's move on. Arsenal signed Nuanku Kanu, Freddie Lundberg, Kappa Diawara, Nelson Vivas. Not not a particularly strong window. Freddie Lundberg aside, Kanu was really good, but he wasn't going to start for them, not with the players that they had up front at the time. Um, Leeds United, they brought David Batty back to the club. They signed Danny Granville. They signed Clyde Winhard, who wasn't very good. Nuno Santos, William Corston, and that was it. Uh, West Ham signed Mark Vivian Foway. Obviously, would tragically die a few years later while playing. When owned by Manchester City, I think he was playing for his national team, wasn't he? Or was he was he on loan somewhere else? I can't remember. I, I know he died playing football. Um, he was a really good player. They signed Paolo De Canio. They signed Scott Minto. They signed Ian Wright and Neil Ruddock. They signed a very young Jimmy Bullard, who would obviously go on to have decent success at different clubs, most notably Hull. Uh, Charlton Athletic signed Graeme Stewart, Chris Powell, Neil Redfern, Martin Pringle, Kyle Tyler, Mark McCammon, Andy Hunt, and Paul Smith. 
They also brought in a very old John Barnes from Newcastle. Southampton signed Stuart Ripley, James Beatty, Chris Marsden, Marion Parhars, who was really good, Mark Hughes. The only thing I remember about Mark Hughes at Southampton is one of the ends at the Dell, maybe both ends, but one specifically, was so tight up behind the goal. There was maybe three foot between the goal the, the goal post and the hoarding behind. Maybe. Might have even been less. And I remember Mark Hughes this season scoring having a volley, putting the ball in the net, it hit the hoarding and bounced back out and wasn't given. You'll find that somewhere, I'm sure. It definitely happened. I have not imagined that. The ball went in, hit the hoarding, came back out and wasn't given. They thought it went wide because it came back out with such velocity. Yeah. Um, Blackburn Rovers, they signed Kevin Davies from Southampton, Christian Daly from Derby, Ashley Ward, Matt Janssen, who was super talented and had like, I want to say he was on a moped or something and came off it and suffered a bad head injury and it ruined his career. He'd make a comeback, but he was never the same. Nathan Blake, Jason McAteer, Lee Carsley, Sebastian Perez, Keith Gillespie, Omar Kunde, Dave McNamee. That's a serious amount of spending. Now, they did sell players for big money as well, but that is a serious amount of spending to do. Tottenham signed Tim Sherwood, Mauricio Tarico, Stefan Freund, who's most remembered by many fans for being an assistant manager who wore shorts and football boots uh, while sitting on in the dugout. Uh, Roger Nielsen, Hans Sagers, who'd been around for years at different clubs. Uh, Liverpool signed Vigard Hegan, Rigobert Song, Sean Dundee, Froda Kippe, Jimmy Triore, Steve Staunton, and John Michel Ferry. Let me say that was a rough year. That was a very rough year. Um, Everton signed Ibrahim Abakioko, who was the next big thing coming out of France. He was, um, was he from the Ivory Coast? I think he was from the Ivory Coast. But he was playing for Montpellier. He was the next big thing. He'd been covered in like World Soccer magazine and a bunch of different places. They signed Olivier Decor, who would do really well in the Premier League, whereas Bakayoko was a flop. Steve Simonson, he was another one of these super talented young keepers. He was at Tranmere. Everton spent a fortune to buy him, and it just never worked out. Um, David Unsworth, having left Everton, gone to West Ham, left West Ham after a week, no, a year rather, sorry, a year, moved to Aston Villa, decided almost immediately he didn't want to play for Aston Villa and then moved back to uh, to Everton. In one summer, he moved from West Ham to Villa and then Villa to Everton. Uh, they signed John Collins from Monaco, super talented Scottish midfielder, gorgeous left foot. Marco Matarazzi, who's obviously most famous for getting a headbutt from Zinedine Zidane. Uh, Scott Gemmell, David Weir were both both brought in. Derby County signed Horatio Cabanari. I don't remember him. 
Uh, Spencer Pryor, Mikel Beck, Kevin Harper, uh, Malcolm Christie, Jared Doherty. Interesting. Uh, yeah, that's basically what we had in terms of transfers. So a lot of movement, a lot of good transfers, a lot of bad transfers, a lot of bad transfers over the years. Um, Manchester United won the title, as everybody knows. They finished top 79 points. Now, you'll get people that will try and disparage this era by slagging off the points total. You fail to realize that that's just how football was in general back then. That doesn't make the quality worse than it is now. Back then, teams valued the draw away from home. Now, because we're we're a bit cleverer, teams realize you're better off to, you know, win two and lose two than win one, draw two and lose a couple, you know? You're better off gambling on the win. If you play four games and get four draws, you get four points. You win two and lose two, you get six points. That's basically how teams used to operate back then, though. You go away from home, you went and played for the draw. Like, United drew 13, Arsenal drew 12, Chelsea drew 15, uh, Leeds drew 13. There's There's your top four. But United only lost three games. Arsenal only lost four. Chelsea only lost three. United 79 points. Arsenal 78 points. Arsenal only conceded 17 goals in the league that season. 17 goals in the league. That was outrageous at the time. Uh, Chelsea third, Leeds fourth, Aston, as I wet, West Ham fifth, Aston Villa sixth, Liverpool seventh, Derby eighth, Middlesbrough ninth, Leicester tenth, Tottenham eleventh, Sheffield Wednesday twelfth, Newcastle thirteenth, Everton fourteenth, Coventry fifteenth, Wimbledon sixteenth, Southampton seventeenth, Charlton eighteenth, relegated. Poor Neil Redfern came up, got relegated with Barnsley, joined Forest and got relegated again. Uh, Blackburn, 19th, all that money spent and then they went. And Nottingham Forest, bottom of the league with 30 points. Disastrous campaign for them. Goal scorers, Jimmy Floyd, Hasselbank, Michael Owen and Dwight York, all with 18 Nicholas Anelka and Andy Cole with 17. Hamilton Rickard with 15. Dion Dublin, Robbie Fowler, Julian Joachim and Alan Shearer with 14. Patrick's, Clive Mendonca for, for Charlton. Michael Owen. Michael Owen again with four against Nottingham Forest. Dion Dublin. Robbie Fowler. Chris Armstrong. Darren Huckerby, Robbie Fowler with a perfect hat-trick in Liverpool's 7-1 win over Southampton, Dwight York, Oli Gunnar Solskjaer scored four as a sub in an 8-1 win over Nottingham Forest, Nicholas Anelka and Kevin Campbell. Assist-wise, Burkamp and Hasselbank both had 13. It's a fair effort from Hasselbank. 
18 and 13. Really, really impressive player. He could shoot and generate ridiculous power with either foot with like no backlift. He just, he didn't look quick, but he was quick. He didn't look strong, but he was strong. He could shoot from anywhere and he would shoot from anywhere. Jimmy Floyd Hasselbank is underrated historically. Uh, David Beckham, Isle Berkovich, Steve Guppy, and Dwight York all had 11. Again, York, 18 and 11 in his first season at United. Tremendous return. Uh, David Ginola had 10. Darren Anderton had 9. So did Harry Kuehl. And James Beattie had 7. Alan Kerbishley was manager of the month in August, John Gregory in September, Martin O'Neill in October, Harry Redknapp in November, Brian Kidd in December, Alex Ferguson in January, Alan Kerbishley in February, David O'Leary in March, and Alex Ferguson again in April. And not surprisingly, Alex Ferguson won the manager of the year. Player of the month, Michael Owen in August, Alan Shearer in September. Roy Keane in October, Dion Dublin in November, David Ginola in December, Dwight York in January, Nicholas Anelka in February, Ray Parler in March, and Kevin Campbell of Arsenal in April. Dwight York was the Premier League Player of the Season, and David Ginola was given both PFA Players Player of the Year and Football Writers Player of the Year. Nicholas Anelka won Young Player of the Year. Your team of the season, Nigel Martin of Leeds in goal, Gary Neville, Saul Campbell, Yapstam and Dennis Irwin as the back four. Amazing disrespect that Arsenal didn't have a single defender in that team. They conceded 17 goals. How, how was there not at least one Arsenal player? Like the goalkeeper should have been in. And how was there not at least one Arsenal defender? Uh, in midfield, you had Beckham, Emmanuel Petit, Patrick Vieira, and David Ginola. And I'm sorry, but Roy Keane not been in. Utterly ridiculous. Uh, up front, Dwight York and Nicholas and Nelka. A hell of a league season. Two great teams in Manchester United and Arsenal that went head-to-head. But it is always forgotten that Chelsea did finish third and were only four points off top. Now, their goal difference meant that they were never really in the mix anyway. But this was a great season. It really was. Now, as a Liverpool fan, it was a tough season because we were floundering in mid-table and you're watching these two juggernauts just run over teams and just look like they're on a completely different level, which they were, in truth. They were on a completely different level. They had incredible managers, incredible players. Their games against each other. Like, this is, by a country mile, the best rivalry the Premier League has ever seen in all regards. This was sensational. The managers hated each other. The players hated each other. The fans hated each other. Their games had immense amounts of quality, but could also be absolute battles. And there's a seven-year span from when, basically when Wenger arrives up until Mourinho arrives in the league, 
where these two teams are just head-to-head, season after season, completely outclassing everybody else. United won four titles, well, five titles technically. It's, an, it's technically eight years, but Wenger arrived midway into, well, part of the way into a season. So he wouldn't really count that one. United won five of the eight, four of the seven that I'd really class as the real rivalry. Arsenal won three. So it wasn't just one team dominating and the other team not winning anything or the other team winning one as, as the Liverpool City rivalry has been. City have won five, Liverpool won one. Mm, hard to really push the rivalry narrative there, even though obviously Liverpool have come really close twice. This was different. Like, this was really different. The only seasons where it wasn't a couple of points here was when Arsenal or United were trying to rebuild something. But the fact that Arsenal took three titles off this United team speaks volumes about how good Arsenal was because United were sensational. Ferguson had built an all-conquering machine. The FA Cup that year, obviously, United would win. They would beat Newcastle 2-0 in the final. Before this game, it really did feel like just a procession because the league was done. There was this game and then the European Cup was to follow in the midweek and everybody thought United have won the league. They're going to win the FA Cup, so they'll have the double. And as an as an ABU and anybody but United you're hoping Bayern will spoil the party. United line up with a pretty strong team, not their strongest 11, but pretty strong. Schmeichel in goal, Gary Neville right back, Phil Neville left back, very valuable squad player, could play either side, could do a job in midfield. David May next to Ronnie Johnson in the middle. Beckham on the right, Keane, Scholes and Giggs. And Cole and Solskjaer up front. Now, Keane and Scholes wouldn't have played in this final, but they were suspended for the Champions League final. So both of them played in this. Keane got injured after nine minutes and was replaced by Teddy Sheringham. And United went 4-3-3 and just embarrassed Newcastle, frankly. Uh, Dwight York came on for Andy Cole. Yap Sam replaced Paul Scholes late on. Raymond van der Hau and Jesper Blomquist were the other subs on the day. Newcastle's team, Steve Harper in goal, Andy Griffin, Nikos Dabizas, Lauren Charvet, Didier Domi, Rob Lee, Dietmar Hammond, Gary Speed and Norberto Solano, Tamuri Ketbaya and Alan Shearer up front, Shea Given, Warren Barton, Marich Glass and Ferguson on the bench. Marich Glass and Ferguson all came on. United 2-0 winners, an 11-minute goal from Teddy Sheringham, who just come on, and then Paul Scholes on 53 minutes. Um, interesting. Didi Haman, who'd been really good for Newcastle since joining from Bayern, um, was injured and had to go off at half-time. He was tackled, and I, I can't remember what exactly happened. But he said to Hullet at half time that he couldn't play anymore, that he was injured. 
and Hollett accused him of lacking commitment and then brought a striker on and placed him because obviously Hullet lacked intelligence. And uh, that was basically the straw that broke the camel's back for Haman, who was fully committed to Newcastle, but would push his way out and join Liverpool um, as a result of this fallout. United were just, they were so much better than Newcastle. It wasn't even funny. Um, obviously, they'd go on and win the European Cup, but I'm not here to talk about European Cup. So, League Cup, Tottenham play Leicester in the final and Tottenham win 1-0, a 90th-minute goal from Alan Nielsen. Spurs team on the day, Ian Walker, Stephen Carr, Saul Campbell, Ramon Vega, Justin Edinburgh, Darren Anderton, Stefan Freund, Alan Nielsen, David Ginola, Les Ferdinand and Stefan Iverson with Espen Bardson, Luke Young, Jose Dominguez, Andy Sinton and Chris Armstrong on the bench. Sinton came on for Janula in the last minute. Spurs played the last half hour of that game with 10 men. Um, Justin Edinburgh was sent off. Uh, for Leicester, Casey Keller in goal, Matt Elliott, Steve Walsh and Jerry Taggart as the back three. Rob Ullathorne and Steve Guppy as wingbacks. Neil Lennon, Muzzy Izzet and Robbie Savage as a midfield three. And Tony Cotty and Emil Heskey, a young emerging Emil Heskey up front. Peggy Arfix said Pontus Camark, Stuart Campbell, Theodorus Zacharakis and Ian Marshall were Leicester subs. Zacharakis and Marshall came on for, for Savage and Heskey, respectively. Um, and that was the season. So, Manchester United that year. Schmeichel in goal. Neville right back. Irwin left back. Janssen and Stam as the centre-backs. Henningberg and David May for depth at centre-back. Both of them could also play right back, especially Berg. But you had Phil Neville could play anywhere across the back line. You had John Curtis who could do a job for you at full-back. You had a young Wes Brown who made his uh, real kind of start that season. He could play right back. He could play centre back. Tremendous defensive unit. Stamina when the, the standouts, obviously. In midfield, you had Beckham on the right, Giggs on the left, Keane and Scholes in the middle of the park. For depth, you had Nicky Butt, who would would never let United down. Um, you had Jesper Blomkus, like I remember, like I said earlier, could play either wing and was very, very reliable. You had a young Jonathan Greening. You had uh, Jordi Cruyff knocking around for extra depth. And then in attack, they just had this brilliant four-man unit. Cole, York, Sheringham, Solskjaer. And that's all they needed. That United team were incredible. I'm taking that midfield four over any other. As a, as a unit, Not forget the individuals. Midfield units, loads of people will automatically default and say, oh, the Barcelona 3-0. And that's fine. That's a perfectly valid pick. That midfield 3-0 is unbelievable. I'd actually take the Spain 4 with Alonso in next to Busquets and Xavi and Iniesta playing just in front of them. I'd take that 4 over the Barca 4, over the Barca 3. But I would take this midfield. I think this is the most perfectly constructed midfield I've ever seen. I just think it's flawless. 
And the fact that three of them came through the academy as well, like the Barca three, is so impressive. And unlike unlike the Barca three, these three came through at the same time. Giggs, obviously, I think a year earlier, uh, two years earlier in truth, because he got through at 17. The rest were kind of 18 when they came through, and Giggs was a year older. So by the time they came through, Giggs was 19. They were all 18, but he'd been in the team two years. But they were all from the class of 92. One youth group produced all three of these. And they signed Keane as a 21-year-old for 3.7 million, 3.6 million, something like that, which in retrospect is an all-time bargain. That midfield, like it had everything. You had Beckham, who's one of the greatest crosses of the ball that we've ever seen, an incredible long passer. Obviously, his set pieces immense but what's often overlooked is just how good Beckham was off the ball like the guy was an absolute machine and so was Ryan Giggs like people ignore the amount of defensive work that Beckham and Giggs put in and I've seen Dennis Irwin and Paul Scholes and a couple of others comment on it that wingers nowadays aren't asked to do what those lads that were asked to do but Beckham and Giggs were as valuable to United defensively as they were going forward. And the Beckham to Giggs 60-yard crossfield ball is one of the greatest counter-attacking actions in history. And in the middle two just had perfect chemistry. Keane obviously was the physical presence who could sit in front of the defence and just shield them or could bomb around, break up play, and then get himself into the box on a counter or just as part of general play, could get himself forward and Scholes would sit in. But what United were brilliant at was the simplicity of their game. Like, we hear so much now about Guardiola and the revolutionising of the game, and that's all fine. But there's, there's brilliance in simplicity as well. And there's beauty and simplicity. And United were just beautiful to watch when they were at their best. Because everybody knew their role. And everybody knew everybody else's role. So if somebody got called out of position, somebody else could fill in and be comfortable. And everyone else then knew how to drop in and rotate and where to go and what to do. But you watch United attack and watch how they do it. You'll rarely see more than five players fully committed to the attack. Generally, it'll be the two forward players, obviously, the two wingers and one fullback. And I mean fully committed to the attack as in in the final third. And then you'll have Keenan Scholes hanging on the edge of that final third in case the ball came back to them. Neville would sit in if Irwin was gone forward alongside Keenan Scholes. He wouldn't fully commit and vice versa. If Neville was the one on the overlap, Irwin would play in that middle third alongside the two. So they'd have a five, a three and a two. So you couldn't play out through them. Couldn't play out through them. But if Scholes committed to the attack, Beckham would often just drop into midfield. If Keane committed, Giggs would often drop in or Beckham might drop in. 
but they would keep that base of five players. Now, depending on game state, if they were chasing a goal, you'd see them commit more. But the greatness of that United team was the mindset and mentality of we're going to score the first goal. And when you're reeling from that first goal, we're going for the jugular and we're going to destroy you. And they'd get a second and a third and then it was game over. United were the most dangerous team in the world in the five minutes after they scored because you just couldn't keep them away. They were just absolutely relentless. And the physicality of that United team with Beckham, with Keane and with Giggs and their ability to just run and run and run endlessly without dropping off. Like people talk about, you know, James Milner and this incredible fitness that he has. No one mentions that about great players. They only mention it when when you're an, when a player's average, that's when fitness and intangible nonsense gets brought up. When they're great players, people don't talk about them. But Beckham, Keane and Giggs are three of the fittest players to ever play in the league. And they would go at that level game after game with no let up. United were relentless. The Ford group was sensational. They all worked well together. You could throw in any two of the four and it worked. Cole and Solskjaer worked. It shouldn't have, but they made it work. York and Sheringham should have been too similar. They made it work. York and Cole, obviously incredible. York and Solskjaer was brilliant. Sheringham and Cole. Sheringham and Cole didn't even speak to each other. They didn't even like each other. And they were still brilliant together. And the same the same is true of um, Sheringham and Solskjaer. Now, I don't know if they didn't like each other. I assume they got on fine. But they were great together. You had an all-time great goalkeeper, two all-timers in defence, and two good players. For me, the best midfield that I've ever seen, just in terms of balance, that's the one. And then that front four, this team was just incredible. But the Arsenal team was fantastic as well. And I do want to give them credit for what they did this season because they were outstanding. They genuinely were outstanding. And when you concede 17 goals in a Premier League season, you deserve your flowers. Seaman was incredible. Dixon and Winterburn, just so solid and reliable at fullback. Bold was solid and reliable. Keon might be the best man-marking English centre-back of all time. He was just horrible to play against by all accounts. Absolutely horrible to play against. Tony Adams is... Tony Adams was what people think John Terry was. Only better. Um, Far better than Rio Ferdinand as well. Great defensive unit. In midfield, I mean, the Vieira-Petit partnership was sensational. You had Overmars on one wing. You were still getting a lot of Ray Parler, but Lundberg was brought in to be his replacement. And in that season, you had Burkamp and Anelka up front. They were a little bit light in terms of depth. That was what held them back. 
Kanu missed a lot of the season through injuries. Played really well when he played, but he was injured quite a bit. Matty Upson couldn't stay fit. They didn't have the depth of United, and that's ultimately what cost them. But they were a really good team. And in another in another time, they win the double because obviously they played United in the semi-final and they drew in the first leg, nil-nil. The second leg was played at Villa Park. Midweek, under the lights, and it's the scene of one of the most famous goals in the history of the FA Cup and in the history of English football, really. But what's overlooked is that David Beckham scored an absolute worldie in that game to open the scoring. Dennis Burkham scored a great goal on 69 minutes. Roy Keane got sent off on 74. Phil Neville gave a penalty away. United were all, talk about on the ropes, they were all over the place. Down to 10 men, physically exhausted. This replay remembers three days after the first game and they're playing Champions League, Premier League, FA Cup. They're non-stop, foot to the floor. Phil Neville gives away a penalty in the 90th minute. Up steps Burkamp. You'd bet your house on him. You really would. Peter Schmeichel makes a great save. We go to extra time. United are out in their legs. But Arsenal are really, really flagging here as well. And Vieira gives away the ball cheaply to Giggs in his own half. And Giggs just takes off. And Phil Neville has told the story of watching Giggs pick that ball up and trying to keep up with him because his job as the left-back with Giggs having the ball would have been to get forward and overlap. So when I talked earlier about how five would commit to the attack, whichever winger had the ball, that fullback was to overlap. So if Beckham had it, Neville would go. If Giggs had it, Irwin would go. And the other one would stay as a more recycler kind of role. But Neville recounts, shouting at Giggs, I'm on my way, I'm on my way, as he watches Giggs move further and further away from him. Giggs just drifts in and out, not moving the ball, running in a straight line, but his body's swerving. It's like, do you ever see those hypnot- the hypnotic thing that they do with snakes with the head movement and the bobbing and the weaving? That's what it was like. Go and watch that goal and just watch. Don't watch the ball. Just watch Giggs. And he's not moving the ball. He's not shifting it until he gets into the the tight situation. He's just keeping the defenders moving, and they're not. They can't. They can't get in a defensive stance to make a challenge on him because they're having to backpedal. They're having to readjust their feet. He beats Keon. He beats Dixon. He beats someone else in there as well. And from an angle that he shouldn't really have shot from. He just leathers it past David Seaman into the roof of the net. And Paul Scholes had made a run and gotten into the box, assuming 
as most people did, Giggs will just cut this across and score to score a tapping. But he, it's it's one of the greatest goals you'll ever see. It's sensational. But watch the goal and just watch Giggs. Just watch Giggs. Forget the ball. Just watch Giggs. Watch the movement, the sway, the body swerves. Just phenomenal. And when that goal went in, it was over. It was over. The FA Cup was over. United were winning it. And the league was over as well. Because Arsenal Arsenal had a chance. A real chance to win the league. And should have won the league, in truth. Because on the 3rd of April, <clears throat> Arsenal drew with Southampton and United drew at Wimbledon. There was one point between them. United drew with Leeds on the 25th of April. They drew with Liverpool on the 5th of May. And Arsenal went top. On the 11th of May, Arsenal lost to Leeds. Arsenal didn't go top. Arsenal went level on points. My mistake. Level on points. Arsenal lost to Leeds on the 11th of May. Had they drawn that game, they would have gone top by a point with United having a game in hand. Had they won the game, they would have gone top by three points with United having a game in hand, but only two games left. United drew the next day to Blackburn to go a point clear. So if Arsenal had won, going into the final day, they would have been two points clear. The title would have been theirs. United were playing Tottenham. Arsenal were home to Villa. Arsenal were going to beat Villa at home. Arsenal were magnificent that year. But so were United. United didn't lose a game after December. 19th of December, they lost their third game. Arsenal lost on the 13th of December and didn't lose again until the 11th of May. Both of those teams were just so consistent and so good. And I mentioned earlier about the draws, how teams would go away and just, you know, you'd you'd take the draw away from home. Arsenal's draws... Liverpool away, Chelsea away, Leicester away, Derby away, United away, Newcastle away, Southampton away. Seven or eight of their draws are away. They also draw at home with Liverpool and at home with Spurs. They're not bad results. Draws at home with, you know, Charlton, Southampton, Borough, they'd be disappointed by that. They wouldn't be disappointed by the others. United's draws. Leicester at home, first day of the season, United looked shambolic, to be honest. It took United a little while to get going this season. They were 10th after Arsenal thumped them in the fifth game of the year. But West Ham away, Derby away, Villa away, Spurs away, Chelsea away, Wimbledon away, Leeds away, Liverpool away. Blackburn away. They were drawing away games. They did draw some home games, admittedly, but 
It was, you know, it was just understood. You went away, you came away with a point. You know that Denzel Washington clip where he says he's from round the way and he's leaving with something? You left with something. You didn't leave with nothing. You came with nothing. You left with something. If you get all three, great. But if not, you get your one point and you go home. That's how it was back then. It was just a different way. Wasn't better, wasn't worse. It was just different. As Roy Keane said, your league title medal doesn't come with the points tally on the back of it. It just says you're the champion. Credit to United. It's it's an incredible season. It's genuinely an incredible season. And I'm going to take a break now. When we come back, we will get into the gossip. And that will be us, I think, for today. So I will see you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So, I believe I said yesterday I would go through the Premier League shirts. So, let's actually have a look at these and see what we make of them. Um, we'll start with Burnley. It it just looks like a very standard Burnley kit. It's claret. It's got a blue collar, blue sleeves, blue shorts. It's not very exciting. It's very Burnley. Sean Dyshearer Burnley, though, not Vincent Company Burnley. Uh, the Crystal Palace away kit, I actually do quite like. White with the, the sky blue stripe going from the left shoulder to the right hip, I quite like it. I think the Chelsea's, uh, sorry, I think Chelsea's new home kit is very, very clean. It actually looks really good without a shirt sponsor. It's a shame they're going to lob some big, ugly logo onto the front of it. But it's a very, very nice shirt. The West Ham kit, like the Burnley kit, is very, very dull and, in truth, is largely the same kit, except it doesn't have a blue collar. It's got a slightly different shape of... It's got a different shape of collar. And it's a slightly different shade of claret, but it's the same kit. Uh, I love the Brighton Away kit. It's the Sassuolo colours, the green and black stripes. Uh, I really like that. The Brentford kit is nice. I think the Hollywood Bets logo is actually one of the better sponsors logos that we have in the league right now. So I do actually quite like the uh, the Brentford kit. Uh, not a big fan of the Bournemouth kit. I don't like the thinner red stripes. It just it for whatever reason I don't like it. Um, yeah, I wouldn't be a huge fan. I do like the Fulham kit, and I like the fact that the. The Adidas stripes are red on one side and white on the other. I think that's clever. So I do like that kit. It's it's my favourite of the ones I've gone through so far. Uh, Newcastle's away kit is quite nice. The, the green. Yeah, I quite like that. I love Liverpool's away kit with the green and white quadrants, but that's because I'm a nostalgia merchant. And I love the uh, the old green and white kit that we had in the same same fashion. I have to say, I do like the new Everton kit. I love the stitching and the the design around the collar and the the hem of the sleeve. I really do like it. And Hummel will always be a win for me. Danish Dynamite is the best kit I've ever seen, and yeah, Hummel, that's lovely. Really nice kit. I don't like the new United kit. 
I don't know why. I just don't like it. I get it's a bit of a throwback. And the Neville, well, not the Neville, the, the Rashford picture on the chair with the roses, the Alan Iverson tribute, very, very cool. I just, I think it's the design in the shirt that I don't like. I think it's just a bit too busy. Uh, I don't like the Wolves red away kit at all. I just, it looks awful. And the Astropay logo is not nice at all. Uh, Villa, I mean, again, like with Burnley, like with Villa, it's just an Aston Villa kit. I think they've had a lot nicer. I don't like the sponsors logo. It looks awful. Um, the shorts and socks are quite cool, but I don't like the jersey. No, I don't like that. Uh, I do like, Toon's home kit is always going to be cool. It just is. I like the Toon home kit. Spurs kit is just boring, isn't it? It's just white. They, no, I, I, no, not for me. Too boring. Um, I don't know what to make of the city kit, to be honest. I don't really like the collar. I know that I don't like the, co- the collar. But the rest of it looks all right. Arsenal's kits are stunning. Arsenal have the best kits in England. Again. Now, these aren't as nice as some of the ones they've had in previous years. But, yeah, Arsenal's kits are class. It really does look well. It really, really does look well. Um, do you know, I have to say, I really like the Palace kit, and I shouldn't. Because Palace wear stripes, and this isn't stripes. This is half and half. This is like what Juventus did a few years ago. But I actually, I do really like it. I love the new Liverpool kit. I do. I love the new Liverpool kit. It's old school. It's very simple. It's a real throwback to the Shankly era. So I do like that. So there we go. Right. Alexander Mitrovic is the subject of a £25.5 million bid from Al Halil in Saudi Arabia. It is believed that Fulham have turned the bid down. But it is also believed that Mitrovic would, would quite like the move. So we'll wait and see what happens there. Uh, Christian Pulisic is getting closer to his £20 million move to AC Milan. Lewis Dunk has signed a three-year contract to stay at Brighton and Hove Albion. So that's obviously good news for them, great news for him. He was really, really good this past season. So hopefully he can carry on that form. He should absolutely be playing for England. He is a better player than Harry Maguire and quite frankly, always has been. Uh, Ruben Loftus-Cheek has said he wasn't content with his role at Chelsea. That's not really surprising. Uh, It was surprising that you stayed as long as you did, to be quite fair. Um, On to the gossip. Paul Pogba will be offered £128 over three years to join a club in Saudi Arabia. I fully believe that will happen. Harry Kane is keen to join Bayern Munich, who have made two bids. Kane could be offered 400000 a week if Tottenham manager Ange Postacoglu convinced him to stay. I don't think that's a good idea for Spurs, personally. Gianluca Scamacca has said he would like, sorry, he said he would be keen to return to Italy to work under Jose Mourinho at Roma. He also said he was very happy at West Ham, regardless of what reports said, and he felt at home there. Napoli president Aurelio Dilleronitis thinks PSG, thinks only PSG have the the financial power 
to meet his 150 million euro valuation for Victor Osman. What he actually said, what he actually said was, if they offer me 200 million euro, I'll think about it. So, you know, uh, Bournemouth are ahead of Tottenham and Tottenham, West Ham and Wolves in the pursuit of Alex Scott. Would he fit? He would be, yeah, he'd be quite a good get for Bournemouth. He'd be a really good get for Bournemouth, in fairness, but he would fit well there as well. Um, Bournemouth signed Romain Favre and they're loaning him to Laurent. They're signing him for 12 million and loaning him. Bournemouth are in a position where they can sign players for 12 million and send them straight out on loan. The Premier League might have a bit too much money. Victor Jokerez is set to leave Coventry for Sporting Lisbon. I believe he's travelled today to make that deal permanent. Uh, Chelsea are preparing an offer for Rayan Cherky. God, I hope he doesn't go there. Um, Chelsea have delayed Romelu Lukaku, Hakim Ziyech and Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang's return to training because they're trying to force them out, obviously. Everton are interested in Anthony Alanga. He might be too young for Everton, given what they're doing at the moment. Uh, Voot Veghorst has been linked with Everton today, so summer's going swimmingly. Burnley have made Gustavo Hammer of Coventry in the Netherlands their next target. I really like the idea of that. I think he's very, very good. Uh, Manchester United are edging closer to an agreement for Andre Onana. Uh, Nottingham Forest, Aaron Talks with Manchester United over a deal for Dean Henderson and are considering a move for Jose Sa. Let me help you, lads. Quivine Kelleher. That's who you need to sign. Uh, Arsenal are hopeful of signing Declan Rice before the squad fly for pre-season training on Sunday. How is, he not, how is that deal not done yet? There's something funky about that. And I, I assume it's Arsenal struggling to come up with the finances for it, but it'll get done. It'll get done. Southampton are considering a move for Jakob Brun Larsson, Jakob Brun Larsson of Hoffenheim. Um, okay. Arsenal have joined Tottenham and Chelsea in wanting Gabriel Viega. No. Manchester City are set to sign Manchester City. Sorry, Manchester City are set to try sign Manchester United 16-year-old defender Harrison Parker after United tried to sign their 16-year-old twins, Jack and Tyler Fletcher. Now, Jack and Tyler Fletcher are Darren Fletcher's kids. Why they're at City's Academy, I don't know, but it does speak volumes about what United's technical director felt about the club's academy a few years ago. Um, Harrison Parker, I haven't seen play, because he's 16, but when you see people who do follow youth football talk about the best young prospects in England, Harrison Parker is always a name that comes up. So I wonder, are City just doing this just to mess with them? Like, obviously, they want the player because City want all the best young players. But this does just seem like, well, you know, you tried to take our two, so we're just going to take your best young player. Um, Right, that's it. That's all I have today, folks. Thank you, as always. I will see you tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye.
Social Podcast Network.